I think it's working. I think we're live. We're live. Are we live? Can people hear me say things? We've got David Shearer's here. We've got Heel. We've got Peter, Tum, Barry, David. We've also got Bjarn. Tech Priest is here. Michael C. Harvey. Oh, all the old favourites. And, and some new fa faces as well. Uh, is this working? Will I have the right credits? Oh, who knows? Yeah, lots of questions. Um, hello, hello. Can everyone confirm that you've got sound? Uh, theoretically, am I seeing sound? I've just changed the battery of my lapel mic, so that's good. It was starting to do some clicking and popping and all sorts of nasty things. Um, let's see, where are we at? Shall I, shall I, um, what time is it? Yeah. I'm talking, but you can't see my face. Hello, everyone. Good evening. Hello, hello. Hello. It's not seven o'clock yet, so this is like the preamble nattery stuff. Um, I've got, so because we don't have a guest, I'm back to just two screens today. So I've got presentation and stuff on the other side. Um, sound people can hear. Lovely job. Oh, excellent. Oh, everyone seems to be, yeah, that's it. So I should be going. We've been going for like a minute and a bit loud and clear. Sound live, no video yet. Yeah. You, you can see my mug, I think. Good. Excellent. Right. Lovely. Oh, I'm excited. It's going to be a good one. It's going to be a good one. Uh, oh, let's... <laughs> right. Let's let's say a proper hello. Hello, everyone. Hello. I have tea. Mm, lovely. Scottish blend. Stuff from an old camping trip. God knows how old those tea bags are. But anyway, um, welcome, everyone. Absolute pleasure to have you here for tonight. I mean, this is the... This is, Episode six, better known as the seventh episode of Rail Natter. How have we got this far? It'll be in double figures soon. Crikey. Um, it's an absolute pleasure to have you all along. Um, today, we're going to be talking about... Um, it's a bit of an alternative history, and I, I'm not a huge fan of counterfactuals, because you basically have to make it up and it becomes fiction. But I've put a disclaimer on all the slides where, that are fiction on this. So if you see a little blipper on the side, and you'll see what I mean in a minute, that says... Uh, fake history or alternative history or something i mean i wrote it and i've forgotten already um then we're talking about alternative history but it, it's a it's a bit of a yeah it's a bit of a counter narrative it's a bit of a if you like this is some fiction that i've written about uh yeah it's some some fan fiction i've written about the advanced passenger train and me <laughs> no um yes so anyway right i'm i'm yammering on horribly let's uh now what am i gonna do let's go for so, yeah, Rail Natter, episode six. What if the APT had made it? A bit of alternative history. Um, I am... What else have we got? So, yeah, no guests. So I'm gonna. it means that you're going to have more than just one or two pictures because it's me. I'm going to absolutely hammer through them. So there's lots of visuals. Uh, there's some graphics. There's all sorts. There should be a feast for you today. Some interesting pictures. Uh, oh, quite the feast. All I can say is... Um, Let's let's kick off. Let's 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 get started. Here we are with the uh, Rail Natter episode six. dark hasn't it <laughs> I got distracted by the chat um let's bring my face back sorry <laughs> professional as ever 
But something, I have to get distracted by something, right? Normally I watch the credits and go, hmm, right, now's my time to like quietly talk in as the Intercity 225 fades out. Well, actually, we're going to be talking about why the Intercity 225 doesn't, won't exist. Which is scary, isn't it? Um, yeah. Okay, before we do all that, a uh, couple of points. First is, um, apologies to the staying in. I didn't realise that there was an event tonight. I mean, these are scheduled, I can't help it. But um, to those of you who are joining after the fact, who've been over at the staying in, uh, Dr. Amy Kavanagh's uh, wonderful sort of activity um, for all sorts of people uh, to get involved and have a nice time. Uh, welcome to you, joining late. Um, and it makes me think of another thing, which is inclusivity of this, uh, which is something I need to work on. So I rely on the automated credit uh, kind of caption creation for this because time is my enemy. I don't have, uh, you know, it's an hour of chat and, I, and I, you know, I'm unfunded or until recently was unfunded for this. So it's something I'm working on. But the auto captions, I think, are all right. So if anyone, any, any of you here are um, have... Uh, are partially sighted or um, are deaf and are following this uh, through the text only, let me know what the captions, if the captions are a real issue and whether that's a problem. So that's the first bit. Uh, second bit is, um, uh, let me get the, let me get this up. Let's get my face up here in the top corner since we're going to start going through here. So, right. First things first, the news. Uh, firstly, the Class 707s, they've got a home. Uh, I worked uh, on a project for a long time on these. Oh, intro music is much louder than my voice. Oh, yeah, it is, isn't it? I uh, ah, I, can, I can fix that, probably. Uh, anyway, right, I'll come back to that. I'll half the volume next time I, I output it. So, the Class 707 has found a home, uh, and it's going to Southeastern. So I worked for several years on gauge clearance projects across the, along with the team uh, across the whole of uh, the Wessex route for these vehicles. And it's good to know that all of that was... Uh, entirely in vain. It wasn't actually because we were setting platforms to the correct offsets. But anyway, um, yeah, so uh, yeah, hooray for the 707. It lives on. Uh, <laughs> uh, next, we have got, oh, absolutely. So uh, there's a competition. Hornby and Hitachi have uh, announced a competition, or Hornby have announced a competition, and Hitachi have kind of, I think, maybe supporting it um, to show support for all the NHS kind of workers, I don't say heroes, they're doing their job and I don't want turning people into martyrs. They're doing a job and we should show them, you know, give them PPE for starters. But um, that doesn't mean that this isn't a really worthwhile competition um, and potentially out of it you get a branded uh, official Hornby train that is your livery that you've created. So go and have a look at that, it looks awesome. Um, right. Uh, 707s are, I think, the first class of train where their replacement was ordered before revenue service. Yeah, that's probably right, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> Anyway, right, we're here to talk about the advanced passenger train, and it's already five past seven, so time, we're hammering through the time, uh, crikey. Um, Daniel, you didn't miss much, don't worry, I, I, I've, we've done a bit of intros and some stuff, uh, don't worry. Here it is, this is, the, this is the, a model showing what it might look like, you'll see it's very long, and that it has the aesthetic, it's got quite a silvery aesthetic, right, it's quite something, it's nice. Um, Originally, this was the brainchild. You can't necessarily entirely pin it on one person, but I'm going to. And that person is um, a bit of a railway legend. He's the greatest uh, living railway engineer, and he is the greatest uh, railway engineer of the 20th and so far the 21st centuries. Who am I talking about? I'm talking about Dr. Alan Wickens, of course. Uh, he is the Director of Engineering Development and Research, uh, or was at BR uh, when it existed, and he was in charge of the APT project. 
Um, he had gone up through doing missile stuff and uh, during the Second World War and, and, uh, and worked on, and he ended up working on Blue, on our kind of silver blue, what is it? Blue Street? No. Whatever our attempt at launch, having an intercontinental ballistic missile program was, he worked on that. So he's a genius, you know, aeronautic and sort of all sorts of engineering skills and backgrounds, but he was a problem solver. Um, and a problem that he was approached to solve, actually, he just randomly applied for jobs. And during his job interview, he was asked if he was interested in improving the dynamic performance of bogies. And he responded saying he wasn't particularly interested at all. And he got the job. Um, and he pro proceeded to do that incredibly well. Uh, indeed, uh, here it is, the High Speed Freight Vehicle 1. If any of you have watched my Maglev video, you'll be familiar with this. This is this vehicle here, um, HSFV1, it's currently up at Shildon. Uh, it's being looked after uh, much better than it has been in the past. Um, and it's probably one of the most important uh, rail vehicles in existence. Potentially actually the most important rail vehicle in existence in its original-ish condition. Um, phenomenally important vehicle um, and uh, and yeah so this allowed the development yes it does have single axle uh, bogies that look a bit weird and gave us pacers but pacers were uh, an unfortunate side effect of uh, we'll talk about pacers another time in the meantime this allowed this basically got rid of, of, of or mitigated hunting at high speeds which caused real problems for energy efficiency for, for fast trains so anything above 100 kind of 110, 120 miles an hour, you got really bad hunting effects, certainly over 130, that, that really hammered the, the energy efficiency and damaged the track. Um, Alan Wickens's, Dr. Alan Wickens's work alleviated that entirely. But as part of that work, he, he, he had an idea, which was to, there he is, Alan, which was to create a lightweight train use, ma making the most of this improvement in dynamic performance. Um, and so um, in 1964, he'd created HSFV1 with the, uh, as part of this, this kind of continuing project. And um, I'm going to drop into the chat, by the way, uh, but I'm probably going to do it in little sort of uh, leaps and bounds every now and then to keep on top of uh, however many good grief a lot of slides. So I'll find the opportune moments to, to pause, <laughs> as normally I do. So in 1964, the project progressed, and uh, it started off by creating... So having developed and worked on these new bogies, improving the dynamic performance of, of bogies, you know, improving their energy efficiency, which incidentally wiped out Maglev and the tracked hovercraft, RIP. Um, they started developing... This is APT POP, or bits of it are APT POP, and this is an indication of some of the research that was being done looking at tilting. So Wickens's idea was a lightweight train that could tilt therefore making the most of the existing track alignments to get fast uh, faster train uh, kind of higher speeds um and and here's some of the wacky stuff they were doing some of this so look at these trains they're, they're weird aren't they which is an opportune moment to look at the chat how are people doing um david shepherd points out that alan wickens was the dude that made us the third country to get into outer space yes blue street 1950s british icbm stuart is saying um Gary, don't worry, it doesn't matter if you're late. You can watch the bit you missed on catch-up if you like. Uh, yep, uh, lots of various bits and pieces. Hunting. Uh, so hunting, yes. So hunting is this behaviour where, you, the, the, kind of, if you imagine two bogies. In fact, you know what? There's a, I've, I've made a diagram of this in, uh, which I could have put in here in hindsight, um, on my Maglev video. So if you don't watch that, there's a nice, uh, there's, a, there's about a five minute segment explaining all of this origin of, of about hunting and why it was important. So go and watch that. It's my top tip. 
Um, and it was it is indeed concrete slabs inside inside that that train there. So what I've got on screen just now, are, uh, for the benefit of people who are watching this as, as a or listening to this as a podcast, are several kind of weird looking coaches on funny looking bogies with aluminium framed or just sort of weird frame scaffold frame looking uh, rolling stock between some Mark One coaches, and these are getting pushed along to test a variety of things like tilt and uh, dynamic performance of various bits and pieces. They look a bit weird. Um, uh, yes, they, they do look a bit strange. They do look very strange. So, um, this man, I hinted at this man earlier. So we, we're, we're going through the sixties. We're kind of getting to the end of the sixties. In fact, we're into the early seventies. The project's kind of rolling on and it's research for research sake until this man arrives. This man is George Jellicoe. Uh, he is the, he was the youngest kid of Admiral Jellicoe of Battle of Jutland fame. And, um, he was in. He, he was the something funny Lord of the Dubery. What's it? Privy to the whatever of our ridiculous archaic parliamentary system, um, and he was for whatever reason in charge of, of, of reflating Britain's economy in the early seventies. And to do this, he wanted to invest heavily, flood money into research and development. This sounds like a good idea, right? It is a good idea, except what he did was he went to British Rail and singularly targeted advanced passenger train project and said that it needs to speed up and start delivering outcomes now by this point the project they didn't even have a train they just had those sort of scaffoldy coaches getting pushed around they were they were doing research for research's sake which is good they were not necessarily ready to start ramping up into creating a train and deciding what a train should be they were still in the what's this train going to look like phase not a what's a commercial model for developing a new rolling a new fleet of rolling stock so this man, George Jellicoe, in 1971, uh, what was kind of referred to within BR as the Jellicoe Initiative, started bouncing around. Now, at this point uh, in Derby, um, I think it was in Derby, yeah, it would have been Derby, Metro Camel and others and British Rail were putting together, here it is, the actual advanced passenger train. This is APTE. So there were two, well, three, if you like, um, test trains. The first was APT Pop, which you've seen. Um, which is really a bit of a hybrid of a few bits of rolling stock. Then APTE, the Advanced Passenger Train Experimental, um, which is this thing, uh, or this is a bit, a bit of it. Um, and then the last train was APTP, the Advanced Passenger Train Prototype. Um, or at least it was in the real timeline, the one that we're all living in. Anyway, it looks quite cool, doesn't it? It's quite, um, it looks like an aircraft rather than a train, doesn't it? Well, that's because it was put together with a lot of aircraft uh, technology and aircraft uh, construction methods, um, but it was very much still a test train. They 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 weren't planning to do any sort of ramping up until Jellico, Jer until this man George came along. Here he is, George, Mr. Jellico came along and started pushing that this should progress more rapidly as a project. Now we have to look at three organisations. Uh, I've got there. We've got British Rail. Uh, we have at, at one end. Uh, so that was kind of British Rail managing the project. Uh, as a research project we have hm treasury at the other end uh, holding the money and then we have in the middle what was originally or while apt was going on the department of the environment for every reason transport was part of that it maybe makes more sense than uh, than you know in hindsight maybe it does make some sense and it was in the process of sort of deciding whether it was a de department of transport or the department of the environment it was merging and splitting and uh, you know and essentially from 1971 onwards, there was just a complete shambles of discussion of what on earth APT should be. 
chaos, absolute chaos. Um, let's have a look at the chat. If people are kind of following and being interested uh, in this, there we are. Uh, yeah, so ramping up, Claxon. Yeah, David Frankel, you're right. That is a Claxon. He was Lord Privy Seal, Monty the Horse points out. Yes, he was. Um, Tom Campion isn't sure whether the APTE is pretty or not. I think it is pretty in a kind of a cool way. It's like a little narrow eye is, is a bit weird, admittedly. Hello, Cyrus. Um, yes, there is a good there is a good picture of APTE with a steam locomotive in the same shed, which is very bizarre. Um, what else have we got? Uh, yeah, the original Japanese Shinkansen Zero Series, so the originals from 1964, for actually around about the same period, a little earlier, uh, they look very much like planes. Yeah, they're going for that vibe, aren't they? They're going for that kind of jumbo jet vibe. It was the it, Just like trains in the 1920s and 30s were styled to look like motor cars, the same goes for now when you've got you know, the jet age. It's, it's very much the jet age, so things are kind of aiming for that, um, that vibe. Uh, <laughs> so... Um, let's have a look. Yeah, it's kerosene, I think, Tech Priest. Yeah, um, liquid petroleum gas, which I think is kerosene. Is that right? Correct me on that. Um, there's a reason I don't know about it. It's because it's the past, uh, and it's not that useful to know about these days. But uh, other people can nerd out. Um, right, anyway, unless you haven't noticed, this conversation is not going to necessarily be, and it, in the chat, it's, all, it's very much entitled to be, but it's not necessarily going to be a hyper-technical discussion because, frankly, the hyper-technical stuff isn't, what caused problems for APT? What caused problems was this. Now, in reality, um, this discussion continued. Well, I tell you what. So this discussion has started. This has started in 1971, and it was continuing. It just continued. So let's let's skip forward to July 1972. Now, July 1972 is when APTE, in its lovely shiny livery, rolls off the production line. Well, it's not a production line. Uh, it's a it's a bunch of people uh, hammering it. Um, but it appeared, um, and and as it appeared, um, well, I tell you what, let's divert from uh, let's divert from the timeline, shall we? We're diverting from the timeline. Claxon, Claxon, this is happening. So, um, yeah, you can uh, good, good. Yeah, here we are. Uh, we're very much diverting from the timeline. That froze. Sorry. Um, this man. Does anyone know who this is? Oh, actually, there's a delay. There's a delay in latency, so you'll never know. This guy is Richard Marsh. Um, he was the chair of the British Railways Board um, between 1970, well, what was it, what was it, 1971 to 76. So he'd been appointed around about the time that APT had sort of been uh, told to ramp up. Um, and uh, he, so our alternative timeline, for whatever reason, on this sort of quite pleasant day in, in kind of late spring in 1972, he decides to get up. And what's he going to do? He's going to plod down to Derby, gets, gets in his car, drives down to Derby, um, or up. I've no idea where his house was. Um, and he, he turns up to see APT get launched. For whatever reason, he turns up. And I don't know if you've ever been at a thing like this before. Some of you might well have, but they're never slick. And they, it's not like 20 minutes. The thing gets shunted a bit this way and some, you just kind of stand around for ages because the, the peop, one, people have got their watch set to a different hour. Someone's got their f phone still, you know, their watch is still set to, you know, uh, daylight, uh, isn't set to daylight savings time for whatever reason. Things always take ages for this. So in, in our alternative timeline, Marsh uh, goes and has a chat with a chap called Sidney Jones, who's in charge of British Rail research overall. And Sidney Jones... Uh, and Richard Marsh also end up chatting to Alan Wickens, who, and they talk about the concept of this 
of this train and, and potentially what it might do in the future. Now they get talking, another man kind of plods over, a chap called Graham Calder, who had very, very recently been appointed as the chief mechanical engineer of British Rail. So in charge of all the rolling stock, amongst other things. Now they all start having a chat, and, and Graham Calder happens to know that this thing, which is the Leyland gas turbine truck, is going nowhere and about to be cancelled. Now bearing in mind that the APTE is a gas turbine powered train, so they're sat, stood next to a train that's powered with, an old, with, a, with a system that they are all talking about being redundant. So they have this conversation and, 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 they, and they decide, you know what? You know what? Richard Marsh just thinks, actually, hmm, let's forget gas turbine. I don't think that's the future. I do not think that's the future. And in this conversation he has, he gets quite excited about APT. And he thinks, actually, this, they, they, they've got something here. This is exciting. What Richard Marsh does is rather than, he, he realises, he, he speaks to the, his people within the, on, the, on the board and realises that there have been some roundabout discussions with no one having any idea what APT is. And you know what he does? He just goes through, he bypasses everyone, he goes straight to the permanent secretary of the treasury. And he has a discussion with this gentleman and they have a long chat uh, where basically Marsh convinces the treasury of two things. The first thing is by explaining to them that uh, an electric railway is a cheaper railway and Treasury will have to spend less overall, he manages to convince the Treasury that the electric advanced passenger train is the future of intercity rail travel in Britain. He just convinces them of that. He goes in, he waves and wobbles around. Richard Marsh, if you look him up, not much said about him, and he wasn't particularly well liked as a chair of, of BR. One thing he was very good at was fighting for investment. So I don't think it's entirely a leap to think that if he just got out of bed and picked up his coffee um, and decided that he was going to go to Derby and have a look at this new train uh, and chat to the engineers and some of the people who are pushing it forwards, that he might have got excited about it and decided to go and speak to Treasury. The other thing he convinced the uh, HMT of was to give BR time and money to develop the APT to maturity. He told them to scrap the Jellicoe initiative, to tell George Jellicoe to just take a step back and let the project evolve a little bit more slowly and to see where it was going. So that was, the, that was the get. That was the things he won. Oh, I'll just point out, if I go back to here, we've, we've diverted from the timeline. In reality, this discussion of no one deciding what APT was for and a bit of hokey-cokey lasted for about four years. Meanwhile, APT was basically sat doing very little. So this essentially delayed the whole pro... In reality, this delayed the programme by two, three years. And then they were forced to rush into providing a train. That is why APT did not become a, a, a squadron fleet uh, railway trip, you know, running, running fast services up and down the West Coast mainline elsewhere. That is why it happened. Simple as that. Uh, all the other stuff, the technological stuff, all of that would have got solved if some decisiveness had happened at this stage, which is what we talked about Richard Marsh doing. So he's convinced Treasury of these two things, but it wasn't all uh, give and take. Um, let's see what people are saying. People are shouting about my diversion into history. Let's see what's going on. Um, right, where are we? People are talking about APT still existing. Um, APT BR's only gas-powered turbine. No, there were other ones, weren't there? I was going to say, I think some of the early... Wasn't there a Gressley? That, not a Gressley, a um, Bullied that was gas-turbine, wasn't there? Sorry, I'm miles behind the chat now. Um, 
Yes, Chris Jackson's here. Richard Morris, Transport Minister First, then BR Chairman. Yeah. Um, let's see. Da, 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 da. Yeah, so we've got a few people. Yeah, yeah. So I, I'm glad to see some chatter going on. Um, yeah, it's power. And, and, and in fact, Chris, so Chris is saying that it was derailed by the, um, the oil crisis. Actually, in reality, uh, Leyland had decided to stop producing the gas turbine before the oil uh, crisis happened. So the oil crisis um, certainly bank was the, the, the nail in the coffin, but Leyland had already got British Rail to agree that the final APT would not be a gas turbine-powered train. So it's more fortuitous rather than result. It's fortuitous that the oil crisis, uh, that, that, that they'd given up before the oil crisis. It wasn't actually the oil crisis that drove that decision. Um, oh, I, I might as well point out, oh, while I'm here, Let's get. Let's uh, do this. There's a brief interlude. How are we doing time-wise? Not too bad. Uh, this book, The Untold Story by David Clough. Brilliant. This This is by far the most definitive uh, tale of APT and, and what happened and what went wrong. It's a very, very good book. Uh, and I, I rely on relied on this for quite a lot of my research. Um, I'd recommend. I'd recommend getting a copy. It's very good. Uh, full of all sorts of amazing pictures that are just yeah brilliant. In fact, the Steam one, I think the one of APT and Steam uh, is, I think that picture exists, I think it's in here somewhere. Anyway, yeah, it's lots of lovely technical details, all sorts of good stuff, it's, it's terrific. So, anyway, I digress. <laughs> uh, let's get back to me yammering on with things in the background. Um, yeah, crew to see it is, is certainly worth, uh, worth having a look at. Uh, do, 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 do. Let's have a look. Lots of oh crikey! Yeah, so much chat. Apologies for uh, apologies for just losing track of the chat. But if you've got something you really want me to see, shout and scream about it, uh, and I'll and I'll go and find it again. Right, let's crack on, shall we? So, it wasn't all take. Richard Marsh was a pragmatist, so he didn't just take from Treasury. He also had some things he wanted to say to the technical team of British Rail. Uh, but first, we have to go to the Railway Museum. Oh, I just spotted something which I'm going to show you actually, which is really good. Hi, by the way, if anyone's. I'm trying out Periscope, so this is going to be ad hoc as hell, but it's all part of the fun, right? Where is it? Where is it? All right, here it is. Just hidden behind a. Um, oh just hidden behind a random luggage. Where is it? It's down here. This thing here. This is for. As far as to point there. This is a hydrokinetic brake from APTE. Um, well, that was embarrassing, wasn't it? Yeah, uh, sorry about that. That's that's me. That's uh, anyway. <laughs> my first do, me me doing my first video. Uh, times have changed, haven't they? Anyway, point of all that was to show that there's a hydrokinetic brake, which is one of the pointless failure modes that they introduced into APT and was a bit of a shambles. Um, anyway, so. This is it. It's in the National Rail Museum in York, uh, as I just pointed out in my uh, 2018 face. I think that was when that was. Anyway, um, one of the things he immediately specified to British Rail was that the train was not going to be a 160-mile-an-hour train. So the first thing he said was, you know what? Get rid of the 160-mile-an-hour capability. Scrap that. It's going to be a 140-mile-an-hour train. That was his first thing. And that had a series of important consequences for the way the design developed 
So that meant that you didn't need those hydrokinetic brakes anymore. And in fact, it also changed the idea from going from tread brakes to disc brakes. So this one decision, which was to slow down the top speed of, of APT, had some consequences on the, on the design. First of all, so got rid of hydrokinetic brakes. The next one was, uh, based on some of the research that had been going on, rather than using hydraulic tilt, they decided to just set on an electronic system of, elect of uh, electric-only tilt. There were, had already been talk about this during APTE, but the decision was made. Richard Marsh, having got involved in the project, um, asked for a specific decision to be made, and they decided to go with electric tilt. They also decided very early on to go with, rather than a 6 plus 1 plus 1 plus 6 formation, so that's six trailer cars with the two power cars in the middle, that formation was required for the 160 mile an hour speed because you needed to have the two motor vehicles being powered by one pantograph uh, to avoid having two pantographs and causing all sorts of dynamic effects. Um, that was because you get rid of 160 miles an hour, you didn't need that, got rid of that entirely. So you could end up with a one plus 11 formation. So that's one power car and 11 trailer cars. So that's quite a substantial change, quite a major alteration to, uh, to the APT that we're familiar with, of the, the, the prototype APT. This is a small change, which is the, the, the chair of British Rail getting involved, getting more interested in the project and therefore knocking heads together a bit more firmly, essentially being a leader uh, taking some level of leadership, made some changes that were pragmatic and will, as we'll see, make a big difference. So what next? Uh, well, that informed the specification. So here we are. Uh, you'll notice this is a little different. Anyway, okay, right, I'm going to sit this with this on the chat and do some talking. What do people notice about this that's different? Anyone notice anything different? Remember, the alternative, the alternative timeline thing is flashing, so this is no longer real. This is fiction. Um, let's see. There we go. Yes, indeed, Chris. That's right. Uh, the the railway inspectorate would not allow the twenty five kV, uh, which is the norm now. By the way, the Pendolinos have it with the distributed uh, motors. Anywho, so uh, yeah, what can people see here? Uh, anyone spot the difference? Spot the difference. A lot of people are noticing this looks like an InterCity 225 with the Jacobs bogies. Mm, yes, you might have noticed that. Uh, David Shears, uh, no, there is articulation, actually. There is articulation. There is intercar articulation, just not on the power car. What are you noticing about the fact that there is... There we are. Panographs at the end. Hooray! Yes, people have noticed. Uh, no, the livery is the same. I've turned it black and white, um, uh, but the livery is the same, actually. Uh, I've just kept it black and white. The, the issue is that, yeah, you've got the, the power car is also where the driver sits. Uh, yeah, so what this means by, yeah, there we go. So it's uh, essentially, I mean, in fact, I tell you what, let's get, to the, let's, let's get to the point. I'm waffling here. This is September 1972. So what this means is that you've gone from a specification of um, rather than Treasury having no idea what it wants, uh, or rather Treasury not being willing to spend money on anything, BR not knowing what it wants or what it needs to ask for, and the DFT just not having a clue and just getting in the way. We get to September 1972. Richard Marsh's intervention means that heads have been knocked together and people know what the train is going to look like. Now, this is really important. Really, really important. Because what it results in is 
what the actual train looks like. People know what the train's going to look like. So here we are. This is this is the advanced passenger train, but this is what became known as the rather than being APTP and APT. This is the pre-production advanced passenger train at, in our alternative timeline. So it's formed of um, a driving van first, uh, which has three axles under it. So this is a uh, you can see here there is the um, so that's a driving end. It's a bit a bit like a DVT, but it's connected with articulation to the next uh, to the next uh, car. And this has 23 first class seats and it's got three wheelchair spaces. And this is based, by the way, on the real specification of APT. This is this is how many seats the cars would have had. This is what the provision would have been just juggled around a little bit. Uh, three first class um, saloons, each carrying 47 passengers, then uh, catering saloon for a second class well, for standard class. Uh, it's called second class back then still, um, which has 28 standard class seats, then five standard class cars, um, then a kind of a brake uh, sort of, or not really a brake car, but the sort of uh, end car, which is a little bit different, which only has 60 seats but, uh, and, and three axles. You notice that's got an articulated bogey at one end and then a conventional bogey at the other. Um, so articulation is where you have one bogey that sits under both coaches rather than what's more normal, actually, which is to have individual bogies uh, under each uh, carriage so they can be moved around independently. What this means is that other than the power car uh, at one end, uh, well, actually, really, it's a locomotive. Other than that, it's a fixed formation, so you can't really take it apart and muck around with it. The last part of the formation is, of course, the power car, which is, uh, here you can see it's uh, got four axles. Uh, it's entirely powered, electrically powered, 25 kV. Um, and there you go, and that's the formation. That is what became, what in our alternative timeline is the Class 370. Very different to what APTP looked like. Now, uh, let's have a look at some stats while we're here, while people are shouting and screaming in the chat, being very interested. Um, so let's have a look. David Shearers is uh, not convinced that the high-powered power car at the front of the train would not reliably get up shaft and beat in bad weather without modern traction controls. Um, David Shearers, it's a very good point. However, um, Firstly, remember the train is lighter, so it's much lighter than uh, an equivalent train would be. They did have traction issues um, with the previous, uh, with APTP in real life, they did have traction issues. Um, but with a lighter train, which this is, it's got fewer carriages than APTP had, um, and better weight distribution because they've got, uh, at the other end of the, of the train, they have uh, some ancillary equipment, which puts a bit of weight in the other uh, uh, kind of driving end. Um, but it is doable. Uh, it is doable. And I think if I put the stats up, uh, you'll see, uh, you'll have a look and see what I mean. So if I go in here, so let's just have a quick comparison of the Class 370 with the um, the Class 390. So our this is our 370 of our alternative timeline with the Pendolino that currently runs. Um, so this is the 11 car, actually. So this is the big Pendolino. So the Class 370 seats 612, whereas the 390 only seats 589. The 370 was, this formation would have been 253 metres long, whereas the 390 is 265 metres long, so it's 12 metres longer. Um, this is the issue uh, that David is uh, pointing towards, which is that the 370 only has 4,000 horsepower in its power car, whereas the 390 has set nearly 8,000, so it's nearly twice the horsepower distributed along the length of the train. 
And lastly, the interesting thing I think that's quite stark about the, the, the level of construction that went into the, these vehicles in real life as well as in our parallel universe um, is how much lighter the 370 is. 353 tonnes for this formation compared to the 390s, 567. It's a huge difference in weight. So um, whilst a single power car um, arguably might struggle, uh, you know, the 87, the 84s were getting over Schaff and beat it with no problem. Um, it is doable. Uh, it is doable. Uh, so I'm I'm not convinced that it was impossible, David, actually. I think that it would have worked fine with this formation, given the weights that were being hauled by Class 84s up over Beatick and Schaap. Um, so lots of people going, hmm, yes, lots of thoughts. So, yeah, it's basically, this is looking very familiar, isn't it? Um, so Matt Reed is asking why both ends aren't power cars. Well, firstly, um, because in this formation they didn't need to be, so it saves weight. And secondly, um, because if you have two power cars separated, this is the same reason that happened in real life that this, because originally they were thinking of doing this, but two pantographs separated by 350 metres or 320 metres gives you a standing wave in the overhead electrification, uh, so in the catenary, so the, 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 the contact wire and the catenary wire above it, uh, you get a standing wave and all sorts of horrible dynamic effects that all mash into each other and result in you making a mess of your OLE. I mean, they make Gary Keener very unhappy. Um, so that's why. That is why. So, conscious of uh, time, I'm going to press this on. So, bear that in mind. So, BR specify what they want. They want four pre-production sets to allow them to test and get everything running and working properly. Critically, the pre-production sets and... The squadron fleet are the same train. So there's not a total difference between the two, which was another major problem that APT had because APT's prototype versus the squadron fleet, they were different, which just left a huge, I mean, that meant they needed more resources to develop design. It was a disaster. That really built onto the, but again, these are problems driven by the Jellicoe Initiative. In our lovely alternative universe, they're the same train, just pre-production sets and then the production sets. Now, this is what the order looked like, and this is the same order that the original APT order covered so these numbers are the same um i'm bouncing between alternate and real realities but the, the, they parallel each other so 22 between manchester and liverpool 15 for going via to birmingham 30 for the east coast mainline so electrifying up there they plan to 13 for um up to leeds and across to hull 30 for glasgow so an additional 30 to run up to glasgow 30 to run along the great western mainline up over to bristol and south wales um, 16 for the west of England, so that's down to Plymouth and Penzance. Uh, 14 for the Midland Main Line up to Sheffield. In total, giving 170 squadron sets needed to be delivered by 1983. So bearing this is our parallel universe, but that's ambitious. That's a huge. That's 17 a year. That's a, in fact less than that. That's uh, twice that a year. Sorry, uh, that's a lot of trains in a very short space of time. So let's see what else is going on in the railway. Well, this thing, the HST. Uh, in the, while APT has been trundled along, the, the HST in our parallel universe still exists, still being developed. Um, and indeed, in May 1975, revenue service quietly starts. And I say quietly because, the, because Richard Marsh had banged heads together and made APT, really made a fuss about APT, eyes were on APT to, to succeed. And so the HST wasn't getting quite the attention that it perhaps did in, in, in our real world. Um, you'll notice I've jumped to 75. 1973 was when the HST prototype did its record-breaking run. That was vetoed in our parallel universe. 
They did not want the attention to go to the HST because they knew the APT was the future. They didn't want the diesel, you know, this diesel train was seen as a bit of a stopgap. And there were a few people who were une uneasy with being seen to be in the past when electric was generally seen as the future. So there was no record-breaking run. So Britain d does not get to hold the diesel locomotive speed record in this parallel universe. It's the first slightly interesting consequence, shall we say, of this alternative future. Um, the other thing they were doing on this train was actually, uh, and this is a problem in the real APT development, they were trialing some of the um, customer service equipment, some of the catering equipment on this train that would then get used on APT. So they were trialing some of this. And in fact, one of these trains had one of the APT catering systems installed into it in our alternative timeline, not in real life. Uh, the flashing thing is in the corner, you see. Um, right, so May 75. The other thing that's going on is a few bits of wagons start appearing that look quite shiny and getting hauled around. And that's because in 1975, bits of APT had already started appearing. So let's roll on to November 1975. With Treasury's arm having been twisted by Richard Marsh, um, the Treasury didn't impose salary limits on the APT team like they did in real life, which meant that the APT team could recruit the best. They were able to recruit people from a variety of industries, from the automotive industry, from the aviation industry, and from other parts of the railway, in fact. So they were nicking from other, uh, so from Metro Camel and from some of the other uh, manufacturers. Here it is, isn't it beautiful? There it goes. And as a result of this, they got the resources they needed to develop at speed. Um, so... The first pre-production trains in our parallel universe uh, were running in the, uh, under their own power at the end of 1975. Now, interestingly, the Euro European Investment Bank steps in and funds 50% of the pre-production development programme, up to a value of £15 million. That also happened in real life. You don't hear that but about that very often. Anyway, right, so we're seeing this beautiful bit of APT action. Isn't it lovely? While we're there, oh, the video will pause if I go to OBS, to over to the thing. So you just have to look at this, and I'm going to have to imagine that the chat is just lots of people agreeing with what I'm saying. So, right, where are we? Look at it, isn't it lovely? Just whizzing along through the Loon Gorge. Everyone knows that bit of railway. Oh, it's glorious. Um, right, 1976, what happens? Well, Richard Marsh, who clearly had championed APT at this point, he got very excited about it, was succeeded by um, this man, Sir Peter Parker. In 1976. However, Marsh makes a very good, a strong point of briefing Sir Peter Parker on APT and the importance of the project, to the point where Peter Parker, having been appointed, goes straight to Westminster and Whitehall and does a little tour, making a point of its importance and talking about the fact that this is the future. Now, in 1977, August 1977, so quite a bit beyond its, its development uh, programme, the first APT... Uh, is, uh, sorry, no, not first day, August 77, we've got a British Rail speed record. So the HST uh, does not get the speed record, but APT does. And it reaches um, an almighty speed of 156.2 miles per hour. Um, and trial, there are some trial passenger runs as well. So you'll notice that this isn't quite as quick as APT actually got in real life. Again, that's because speed wasn't quite as important, but they, the engineers did want to hit the 250 kilometer an hour mark, which in Europe had started being considered as the high speed threshold, because it meant that this train had export potential. And that was really important for the developers. 
um, and it gave a bit of impetus. It was a bit of, of British, of um, UK PLC, if you like, as we call it now, um, because they were selling to Treasury that there was potential export uh, uh, orders in, in this. And they also worked out that uh, tilting to 15 degrees wasn't necessary and they could reduce the tilt. So the amount of tilt that the APT had was up to 15 degrees. They worked out that you know, with passenger trials, kind of a few casual passenger trials, uh, no grand press announcement, I'll point out, that they could reduce the amount of tilt down to nine degrees. Um, so that was in the pre-production sets, uh, which actually improved the comfort for passengers. Uh, really important because a lot of people were experiencing nausea. Um, and it didn't have an undue impact on track damage by reducing that tilt. So skip forward to 1979 and the, the Intercity APT started being introduced onto um, kind of one by one, not, not a grand uh, kind of fanfare, one by one, these started appearing in passenger diagrams. As had been tried with the HST, rather than a big fanfare, they just swap out an old service, an old, a kind of one diagram with a new train. And they kept doing this. And this, so this, when was this? This is February 79. 79 is an important year. Actually, as that year progressed, they got one passenger uh, who Peter Parker had managed somehow, amazingly, to convince... Um, as part of an election campaign, in fact, as part of a Conservative Party leadership campaign, to have a ride on one of these. And that person was, um, she was called Margaret Thatcher. There she is, uh, hopping onto an APT in our alternative history. It's, it, that's an 89, and she's standing on it, and I don't know why. Anyway, it's a good picture, and it gets the point across. So come May 1979, that, that, that Margaret Thatcher lady somehow manages to get voted in uh, as Prime Minister. That's exciting, isn't it? Um, anyway, so she's hopped on. Um, let's leave this picture of York and an HST up while I have a look at the chat. Where are we? 1943. Got a quarter of an hour left. Look at this. Um, uh, let's see. Da -da 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 -da. Oh, lots of people thinking. Look at this. Da -da -da -da. Yeah, people are talking about cat replacement problems. Uh, yeah. That's it. 40 years old. Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah. Nice chat. Lovely. I'm not going to be able to, there's so much excellent chat going on. I'm not going to be able to keep on top of it, but, um, lots of, ah, interesting. Yeah. Okay. Barry Jones is pointing out that Martian Parker did have a real life conversation about pigeon traffic. Um, maybe he's also joking. I don't know, but, uh, I like the idea of them talking about pigeon traffic and suggesting it's a dreadful idea. Um, uh, Robert Woolley points out that in, in real life she was standing on a Class 89 uh, because it was built by the private sector, uh, Brush. Uh, yes, very, very likely. Uh, yes. So, um, yeah, uh, we, yeah, there are lots of discussions about alternate timelines. Right, let's go back to the HST. The HST had um, it'd been going pretty smoothly. Here it is looking quite smart. So this is the production HST. Um, it had been rolling out and basically it was being used by BR as a bit of a warm-up, um, firstly, it, while electrification was being expanded, but secondly, to warm up passengers to this new, to, to trial new timetables, um, but also to the, the new service, this, this new air-conditioned service. Um, however, without a speed record to its name, it had drawn the ire of the British press. They didn't like it. Um, as you can see here, this is a, one of the articles that was written about it. This is a real article, so you'll notice there's no flashing alternative timeline thing. Quite a few of the press did not like this train. It was seen as the past. It was diesel. P 
People laughed at it because it was essentially the same as all the diesel trains that were running on the network. Now, it just did not have the popularity that, that perhaps we in our universe saw. Um, and part of that will be because uh, of the lack of fanfare. There was, the, 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 for whatever reason, having the speed record uh, worked in real life. Uh, not doing so perhaps didn't. But also, there was a lot of energy within British Rail for this train to succeed. Um, without the leadership that we're, our parallel universe has, where APT was very much the feather in the cap, um, without that, uh, there was a bit of a free-for-all, and Intercity 125 felt like the in-house solution, whereas APT did not. And that did, make, that did cause some friction. Whereas in our parallel universe, that had been perhaps not swept aside, but um, let's say stamped on by the board. Um, in any case, uh, HST was running all right. Um, right, here's APT running. So by this point... Um, it's running in, in passenger service uh, and increasingly, you know, there are more and more of them are rolling out. However, there are some problems. British Rail Engineering Limited is not able to deliver these at the speed that had been required of it uh, earlier in the de- kind of at the end of the previous decade or the middle of the last decade. Plus, there are delays to electrification. So electrification expanding northwards is being delayed, towards Glasgow is being delayed. Electrification, the East Coast Main Line hasn't even started yet. There are serious problems. I keep having to say in our parallel universe. But this will all sound familiar. Now, um, so here is the, the kind of the table of planned deliveries for advanced passenger trains. You can see there's a lot of trains there and the delays are starting to build up. So whereas planned delivery for the first trains was 78, actually they were finished, deliver, they finished delivery in 81. Uh, inst- you know, and, and this is just a cascade through. So um, there are problems. The trains are all being delayed quite a lot. Um, and in fact, you know, the, the, we're talking about a five or six year delay on the delivery of these. So what happens? We're, we get to 1981 and a report is published. Some of you might have seen I tweeted about this earlier. It's the review of mainline electrification. So February 1981, this report is published. It's a study that started in 1978 and it was looking at the need for electrification across the UK and the benefits that that could have. Uh, and what we're going to do is go into the chat again. Uh, let's see. So... Um, ah, yeah, this report. We've had so many why electrification is a good idea reports and they never seem to stick. What happened here, this report allowed, because of the push of APT, the report, coupled with the delays in delivery of the of, of APT production sets, allowed a bit of basically a recasting of the schedule. They could slow down, because electrification was uh, happening more slowly than it should be, this report said, right, steady pace, slow it down a bit, but keep a rolling program. And that meant that they could recast the delivery of APT. So they actually reduced the number of uh, of APT sets. Uh, so from, what was 170 down to about 93. Um, and they also suggested that by the time that the, the last of those, this first sort of fleet of advanced passenger trains was being delivered, a new train might need to be delivered. So they would start development on what they were calling APT2, which would be delivered between 1991 and 2001. So that basically gave a 10 year, 1978 to 1988 for APT1, if you like, and then 1991 to 2001 for APT2, with a bit of development time in the middle. Um, and so that basically meant a reduction from 170 to 93 production APT sets in our alternative universe. Meanwhile, the 1980s was happening. Uh, Britain was having a meltdown. Uh, We were being moved from the past into the present day. Uh, We were uh, 
blowing up and setting fire to things and generally hitting people. And as a result, everyone was distracted and not paying attention to British Rail. Um, and actually, you've noticed I've not put a little flashing thing in the corner because this, this is true. British Rail basically got on with things through the 1980s because people were busy doing other stuff. Um, and indeed, back in our alternative universe, that is what happened. More and more APTs starting to get delivered. With this new schedule, slowed down but more realistic, APTs just started appearing. And towns, start, towns and cities that were getting kind of served by these trains started getting quite excited. They started wanting to name the, the trains. And, and they did. They had that nice naming ceremonies. British Rail started uh, improving line speeds so in advance of the trains arriving as well. So nice 125 mile an hour um, upgrades here and there. And in uh, October 1983, BR built the first or opened the first high speed line in Britain. It's the Selby Diversion, which I've talked about and we'll talk about again in the future. Here it is. Look at that. It's a nice bit of viaduct. And indeed, this was built as an electrified. OK, so if I'm going to go to alternative uh, futures uh, or histories, this was built as an electrified um, diversion. And actually, it, success led British Rail to uh, the, the, the Selby diversion was such a successful project. And given what APT was intended to achieve, which is kind of turning the rail network into almost uh, kind of prioritizing into city services, um, actually, BR invested in a couple of other little straightening projects, not huge projects, you know, you know, up to maybe about 10 miles. But these were straightening projects to kind of iron out some of the kinks. So, for example, at Morpeth, um, the, line, the East Coast Main Line was straightened out. Um, on the West Coast Main Line, a few of the kinks were straightened out, particularly around Stoke. Um, quite a few little upgrade projects were done. Um, right, what are people saying in the chat and what time is it? Oh, it's 1951. We're running over already. Crikey. Yeah, here we go. So lots of people. Uh, there we go. There are people at Yeg. Yeah, this is it. A note from Director Intercity in 1983. Uh, workers continue the design of a simplified version of the train and development of the existing prototypes. Oh, is that real? Let's say it's real and indeed or not real. Um, I love this. Lots of people. Um, <laughs> yeah, there we go. Lots of people are deciding on their own versions of what's happening in this alternative uh, history, which is fun. So let's let's press on. So. The APT continued, uh, and they we're getting some progress in electrification. So, for example, electrification of North Wales um, had kind of the designs were ongoing. The East Coast Main Line uh, electrification was kind of uh, being progressed. Uh, the Midland Main Line was delayed, but it was still being electrified. So this rolling program is continuing. So by the end of the 80s, um, it was a bit behind, but it was progressing. Um, similarly, APT delivery was going swimmingly. So the first uh, sets had been delivered. Um, in, indeed, by 1989, all of the original production run of uh, advanced passenger trains had been delivered. They were all running. A little bit late, you know, maybe a, a year later than originally, originally planned. But 1989, they were all running. Um, 93 advanced passenger train dashing around on, under electrified, uh, on electrified railways. Now, the next uh, order was started for the new APT2. So this is for the new advanced passenger, the kind of the second uh, series of advanced passenger trains, a bit like the Germans had ICE2. Uh, the UK had APT2. And you can see the number of sets, changed, the numbers have changed slightly, but it included some new orders. So the plan to electrify North Wales had come out of the 1981 electrification report, as had the plan to electrify to Aberdeen and Inverness. So the idea was that this was a longer term view that the industry could have so that it could uh, have the right number of people to actually electrify uh, more cost effectively, but with a longer term view. Basically, it was a bit of a strategy. And all of this was kicked off by the spark of Richard Marsh actually championing APT back in the 70s. 
Right, so 1989, what's going on? Well, here's Thameslink. And, you know, Thameslink rolled out just as it did in our universe. Um, but things are a bit different in the railways in Britain. Electric intercity is king. That's very much the prestige. It's electric intercity. The HST, by this point, is running on secondary routes or where the, electric wire, where the wires haven't arrived yet. Um, the intercity sector has significant control over the BR business, uh, more so than it did in real life. Um, probably at the expense of regional railways and indeed freight. Uh, and, uh, but the, HS, the fact that the advanced passenger trains have cascaded uh, high-speed trains, HSTs, onto secondary routes, such as the Trans-Pennine route, the Settle Carlisle, it has transport, that has actually resulted in an upturn in ridership on secondary routes. However, there are consequences to this. We'll come to those in a second. Um, so let's, let's bring on the Let's have a look at what's happened. So 1989, this is what's going on. Uh, these routes are all electrified. So you've got electrification up to Glasgow and Edinburgh. Uh, you've got electrification up to Leeds and electrification up to Sheffield. Uh, the plan at this point in 1989 was to, by 1991, they'd have electrified to Swansea via Bristol. By 97, you've got electrification to Hull, Newcastle, Edinburgh, Hollyhead, and down to Penzance. And then by 2001, they'd have got up to Aberdeen and Inverness, which is nice, isn't it? Look at that. Lovely. What do people think of that? Um, people, are, people are excited by this. There we are. Um, so, yeah, lots of discussion about electrification. Yeah, indeed. Aberdeen and Inverness. It will happen. Uh, David Shearers is right. It will happen. It's a no-brainer. If you've got six trains an hour... Uh, in either direction or 100 miles an hour line speed wires immediately pay for themselves like it's a no-brainer uh, david's written extensively on this so david shearers is on uh, uh in the chat i'm sure he can send lots of links or just go and find david on twitter he can send you all sorts of links about this and in fact the rail engineer piece is probably on the internet so search rail engineer electrification and there's loads of good stuff in there so this is where we're at that's what's quite a nice looking map. You'll notice two major emissions. One is electrification over the Trans-Pennine route, and the other is electrification on the cross-country routes. Even though these had been proposed by um, the electrification report in 1981, in our alternative universe, because of the number of HSTs around, they weren't to be progressed because they thought we can't have HST, we can't cascade the HSTs anywhere else. They have to run somewhere, so they're going to run on the Trans-Pennine, on the Edinburgh-Glasgow, and on the cross-country route despite the fact that those really ought to have been electrified. So already you can see that politics, that nothing's perfect. Politics is coming back into play again. Um, and here is what APT2 would have looked like, the beautiful APT2. Um, and actually, it follows a very similar model to the APT. It was a power car with a fixed rake behind it, same number of carriages, doing exactly the same thing, just modernised. So actually, it's not a radical revolution. It's just an evolution of the APT design just with the best livery that has ever and will ever exist. God, it's stunning, isn't it? For anyone who's um, listening and not watching, uh, this, is the, uh, this is a very sleek, very beautiful-looking train, very slender nose. The livery has um, got a very nice angle to it, the lovely intercity swallow livery with the, black, the iconic black and red, just, just uh, an image of perfection. Um, it's not all rosy, though. I touched upon some of the problems... So the upshot of the success of electric intercity services that run fast, because of tilt, they run fast. The upshot is that British Rail closes a lot of intermediate stations. So we're talking about places like Goostree, Cheddington, Attic, 
uh, quite a few of the stations that are on the West Coast, Midlands and East Coast mainlines, they get closed. In fact, over 300 stations are closed and the plan is to continue closing them as, let, as, the, as this service continues. So the success of APT has meant that we have a, 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 in order to get over the mixed traffic railway problem, the railway has pushed more in the direction of running into city services and less to running local and regional services. In the meantime, Intercity continues to serve people and, you know, the trains are getting to be 10 years old. They're, they're, they're still doing pretty well. You know, they're, they're clocking up about a million miles every three years. So, you know, they've, they've gone to the sun and back or something in terms of mileage. But they're popular. People like them. They're modern. They feel modern. Um, they're comfortable. Uh, people like them. They're fat. They get people where they need to be. Um, we're going to skip back to a certain date, which is October 1987. Now, why am I about to do that? Oh, I'm about to do that because everything's going to go to hell. That's right. Black Monday happens and it's a complete disaster. And we have the late 80s or rather the early 90s recession. Um, so skip back forwards to 1989 again. What does that mean in Britain? Well, let's bring our electrification map back up. What that means is that the government of the day decides to scrap everything. So they say, OK, forget electrification of Inverness Aberdeen. Forget uh, quite a lot of the electrification that we we're expecting to deliver by, to deliver by 1997. Actually, all they're going to do is finish the electrifications they'd already started physical work on. So they plan just to electrify up to Edinburgh. So they scrap the electrification in North Wales. They uh, scrap electrification down to Penzance. So you end up with a reduction in the amount of electrified services. The beautiful advanced passenger train number two, that project is also scrapped. It's cancelled. Um, and things aren't looking too good, to be honest. A decade of Thatcher combined with a recession means that everyone doesn't bother to take the train anymore roll forward to 1993 and yeah you guessed it the railways act 1993 comes along and the railways are privatized just as they were uh, in our universe so yeah things there are bigger world there's a bigger world out there and the reality is that just the same pressures hit the railway with apt as as without apt um so, uh, yeah, so people are thinking, yeah, there we go. That's some, some, some consideration. Uh, there we go. There we are. Da, 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 da. Uh, some people haven't seen that. So that's a picture. Okay, just as that picture I just put up of, it, of APT2 is actually of the Intercity 250. Uh, and it's stunning. And, oh, my goodness, you can see it in the National Rail Museum. I'd recommend it. Right, so uh, people are agreeing that actually this maybe isn't necessarily the best thing for the regions. You end up with a very national railway and not very much uh, not rational railway. Um, right. Anyway, railways at 1993. Let's let's crack on, shall we? Because I'm already late as ever. This is supposed to be a quick one, and I've already anyway. Never mind. So the lovely APT is still running. It's still going because you know uh, the trains are not that old. So so let's roll forward to 1999. The trains have been running now for 20. No, it's, uh, some of them the oldest for 20 years and the youngest for. Uh, over 20 years, and the youngest for only about 10 years. So some of them are old, some of them new, but they start reaching the point where we need to, you know, the, the new privatised railway doesn't like, the, the, these are old trains now, That they're, they're British rail trains, uh, they've been running a while, and people have an association with them that is, these are the past, not the future. Particularly some of the new private operators. And so, in 1999, the first of the advanced passenger trains gets hauled off for scrap. So 1999, earlier than it needed to be, because an electric train can last quite a lot longer, but the first advanced passenger trains, the first 
kind of, they, they first uh, they, they end up in Rotherham getting scrapped just like Pacers are now. And by the time you get to the year 2000, the new train has arrived. And what new train is this? Well, it's a Pendolino, of course, just as happened in the past. Um, a little bit different in our alternate history is that rather than um, Fiat in, relying entirely on Fiat's tilting technology, uh, this is a sort of a joint venture between um, Alstom, who had bought up Metro Camel, who had got had some involvement in the when they were delivering the APT in our alternative universe, um, and the scrapped APT2 project. Some of the people who worked on that move on to a project within uh, Alstom, and the private uh, sector delivers this train. Alstom delivers this train, the Pendolino, based on a mixture of advanced passenger train 2 technology and uh, so on and so forth. This is our alternative timeline, of course. In reality, this used some of the tilting technology and some of the Swedish traction technology and various other bits and pieces and Swiss bits and bobs to be delivered. In any case, our alternative universe looks... By the time you're getting to now, things look pretty similar to how they do now. APT was has kind of resulted in some changes, but not, not a huge amount, actually. And, and so I think today's railway would look pretty similar to what it did in the past. Um, so, APT. Right, I've hammered through that. Hopefully that was... That, that, I, don't, I don't know what you thought about that. It was something a bit different. But um, I think it's useful to look at an alternative history because it helps us to see not only the, the fact that everything wouldn't have been shiny and beautiful had APT succeeded. It would have had some unpleasant consequences, which I'm about to touch on. But also that... Um, uh, it's interesting to look at AP, what caused APT to, to be a failure or not to reach squadron service by looking at what things might have changed to make it happen. Um, and also, I think it's useful to look at alternative histories. Hopefully in this one, I've made the point that there is a bigger world out there. It's not about the technical fiddly stuff. Actually, it's more about socioeconomics and politics, um, about where, whether things like this succeed or fail. So in a, in an, in a world where APT made it to service, um, we'd have had more electrification, We'd have, I think, had more focus on intercity services than we have now and less on local services, which would have meant that we'd have had reduced overall capacity on our railways. Lots of fast services with a few slower services is still a mixed traffic railway, except that by closing lots of smaller stations, you reduce the interest in running those smaller services. Um, you wouldn't have had a Class 158. You might still have had sprinters, but you wouldn't have had the express sprinter because the HST was doing the job that it ended up doing. I don't think you'd have ended up with networker turbos for similar reasons. Um, but other than that, not a radical change. The railway of our alternative universe in 2020 probably looks pretty much the same as the railway of, uh, of, of, of our real universe that you and I are chatting in now. Um, and I, yeah, so I think things would have looked pretty similar. Let's have a look at the chat. What do people think? Does everyone agree? Uh... People are asking about how those closed 300 stations would have been served. Well, the point is they weren't anymore. Uh, bus, they'd have become, they'd have become uh, a bus service. HS2 by this point would have still been a necessity because you've had mixed traffic, but perhaps the case would have been undermined a bit because the lack of local stations might have reduced the conflict a little. So the railway would overall be carrying fewer people, but um, overall it's moving. It probably has a reduced modal share compared to... Uh, the real universe. So actually, it's a it's a worse railway overall in our alternative universe than in the current one we have. Isn't that strange? Bearing in mind that the APT is basically my favourite train, and it's the idea of like hope unfulfilled. I still think that we're probably better off that it didn't run. So there you go. Um, the West Highland line. No, the West Highland line would have still been running because 
Uh, first, it doesn't run with it. It currently runs with one five six anyway, but also it didn't ever have APTs, so it didn't have a it didn't have a problem. Um, right, so that was APT. I'm five minutes late, so I'm doing better than I normally do. But let's um, let's crack on with the the, the, the last bits, which is firstly, Heel, uh, no doubt, will put this one up on the podcast. If you've listened to this, uh, thanks. Sorry, it's a very visual medium, but hopefully I talk about the pictures enough that you know what's going on. Um, uh, it's available on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and the other one. Um, the end on Friday, theoretically, will be the next in my The Permanent Way series, which is where I use City Skylines to talk about railway concepts. Um, oh, what else am I going to plug? Uh, let's have a look. Um. For nearly 200 years, railways have created a legacy of stunning architecture. From beautiful rural stations... It worked. ...to grand buildings in major cities... This is one of London's most famous clocks. From revolutionary viaducts... Nobody knows it's here. It's just got everything going for it. ...to gigantic signal boxes. These architectural gems are found in the most extraordinary places. It feels like a different world down here. I'm Tim Dunn. Join me as I explore the architecture the railways built. Starts Tuesday the 28th of April on Yesterday. Yeah, indeed. Right. So I'm very pleased to say that um, we've got Tim next week. So not only on... Um, not only on... Tuesday next week is Tim's show, The Architect of the Railways Built, which you should definitely watch because it will be brilliant. But um, but Tim is joining us next week. So for next week's uh, Rail Natter, we have Tim Dunn joining us to talk about uh, talk about the show, but talk about some other things as well, things that you find interesting. Uh, found interesting doing the show and probably a couple of other bits and pieces. Tim, the, the, the UK's most effervescent ferroechnologist, um, it's going to be a joy to have him. Um, and it's going to be good fun. So, uh, so that's that's Rail Matter next week. Uh, I look forward to seeing you then. Um, please, please do think about supporting me on Patreon for one pound a month. It's nice and cheap, and it lets me do these. Uh, I mean, you can support me for more, but basically, if you support me on Patreon, you get goodies and freebies and all sorts of exciting things um, that uh, allow me to do more of these because. As I get more guests, I've got a feeling these might get more time-consuming. <laughs> uh, anyway, and if you don't want to support me on a long-term basis, then I can still you can still chuck me stuff via coffee and PayPal. But Patreon probably is the best place because there are goodies and freebies. Um, yeah, oh, and also on Patreon is where you get to vote for the next Rail Matter theme. You can still suggest themes on Twitter, that's fine. But in terms of voting for what the next theme will be, only the Patreon people get to do that now uh, because it saves a bit of spam on Twitter and also... Um, they get goodies, right? Uh, freebies. Um, oh, and also, yeah, follow me on the Twitter if you don't already. Uh, we've got to beat Stop HS2. It, it's slowing down and we need to defeat Stop HS2. They can't reach 10,000 10, followers uh, before the end of the year. We've got to, we've got to beat them, right? Um, uh, yeah, so, uh, oh, and, um, well, let's say cheerio first because uh, I like doing that. Uh, oh, golly, I'm running out of the kit. Where are we? Let's get my face up. Hello, everyone. Right. Thanks so much for, for being with me on that. There was some great chat. Uh, lots of, I mean, a lot of chat that I'm behind on. Hopefully that was fairly interesting um, and an interesting alternative history to explore some of the challenges. Um, thanks to the Rail Magazine team, by the way, who, um, 
are brilliant. They put together this thank you to the railway family, which is which is great. I'm really glad they did that. I think it's it's really important to acknowledge how many people are out there uh, on the front line, uh, key workers, making sure that people that well they are key workers, get making sure that other key workers can get where they need to be. It's a really good gesture. So good work on the on the team there. And I will see you all next week. Uh, see Patreon people on Patreon and see you all on Twitter. And this has been fun and a bit chaotic, and I did too much in an hour, but it's fine because it's fine. <laughs> Uh, yeah, uh, thanks to Patreon supporters and, uh, oh, wait, 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 wait. Cheerio, cheerio, cheerio. Uh, oh yeah, I'm still cheerioing. That's right. Bye, 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 bye.